Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Richard Cohen's new book, Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past, is a survey of historians over the past 2,500 years, from Herodotus to Tacitus, Livy, Voltaire, Gibbon, Winston Churchill, and Henry Louis Gates, Jr., and looks into how professional historians and other equally significant figures, such as the writers of the Bible, novelists, and political propagandists, influence what becomes the accepted record. It's published by Simon & Schuster and brings Richard Cohen, the former publishing director of two leading London publishing houses, to our show now. Welcome. Um, Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, it's a fascinating uh, uh, topic, and uh, I'm glad that we could talk about it. Now, Herodotus has been called the father of lies. How many of the other famous writers of history can be accused of intentionally lying? Well, intensely, um, how consciously people lied or not is a question. Um, sometimes historians or people who write about the past um, think they are telling the truth, mm-hmm. but in fact are getting things wrong. So that the famous American historian, William Hickling Prescott, for instance, um, writing about the conquest of Mexico, writing about Cortez, really romanticized him and made a lot of the really cruel actions by Cortez and his troops. Uh, he kind of whitewashed them. Um, so that probably doesn't quite count as lying. Um, but it certainly gave us an untrue version of what the past was like. Well, you also argue that some of the historians who've practiced bad history have twisted reality to glorify themselves or their country. Well, very much so. Um, There's a chapter in in the book um, called Bad Historians. Mm -hmm. I go in detail into the way that Japan has treated its history from 1931 to 1945, where um, progressively from the time that MacArthur um, left uh, Japan onwards to the present, they've refused to admit things like the rape of Nanking, their treatment of what were called uh, comfort women, who were used um, as sexual objects, really, by the triumphant Japanese, um, even the use of biological weapons. And and they've, er- they've erased purged officials as well. But yeah, so, absolutely. And so have um, Soviet revisionists. Well, I, I talk about how when Putin first came to power, he wanted to do away with the way that Stalin uh, had behaved, uh, ha- had tried to um, shape history to his making. Um, and for a while, at least, um, people were allowed to write about the awful massacres under Stalin and the way Stalin acted and um, made people um, really afraid of telling the truth. And then, little by little, year by year, um, Putin became Stalin's puppy almost. (laughs) And in recent years, well before what's happening in Ukraine, um, Putin started to tell people in his country how history should be written, that it should be reorganized Um, and retold to show only the good things in Russia's past. Um, He um, pushed out of existence several um, textbook publishers and made sure that the main historical texts were most likely published by government publishing house, 
apart from anything else, um, as you had print runs sometimes of over a million copies, was a very lucrative way of uh, broadcasting the truth. So those history you, books are that, still being taught in, in Japanese and Soviet schools? Um, well, the government in both countries, Putin far more than Japan, but still both countries, uh, have a pretty intense hold over what should be taught in high schools or in universities. And I, I highlight those two, but I remember in November last year, um, it was headline news in the New York Times that President Xi of China had mm. said he was reviewing the way that history was taught in Chinese uh, centers of education and that he would see to it that a more um, pat uh, a patriotic version of Chinese history was taught, one that really did away with anything he thought was critical or unpleasant about Chinese actions. So you've got, really, throughout the world, dictators at war with historians. You say some myths, like Plato's noble lies, can work in a positive way. Every, every country needs myths of one kind or another, particularly over its early years, um, to, give, to, to, to draw a country together, to make the people in that country have something to be proud of. And you can choose, I don't know, King Arthur, Romulus and Remus, um, some of the, the most abiding ideas we have of heroes from the past, a total make-believe. Now, you write about Gibbons and the, his book, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. How much can we trust in what he wrote there? How much could he have known about what happened uh, during the Roman Empire? Well, he was a great researcher. But one of the, the themes of my book is how anybody who writes about the past, I don't just mean writing, I'm using that as a kind of shorthand, um, painters, movie makers, and so on, anyone who tries to grab the, the, the past by the heels um, will have an agenda, whether it's a conscious agenda like Putin and President Xi or an unconscious one. And that will shape how they select, how they write, how they put their version across. And so when we read Julius Caesar or William Shakespeare or Ken Burns, for that matter, uh, should we assume their biases have a, a influence uh, our understanding about the past? Well, I begin my book with a quotation from the great historian of the 1950s and 60s, um, a British historian, um, who said, if you want to know about history, look first at the historian. Mm -hmm. And to go back to Gibbon, Gibbon was four foot eight, fat. He had all kinds of, of physical ailments. Um, and part of him, I think, deliberately chose um, the body beautiful Hellenistic, uh, um, sorry, uh, the period in Roman history where the body beautiful was much worshipped. And um, although he was determined to show the awfulness of Roman emperors and research deeply into, you know, numismatics, um, old calendars, uh, what writings still existed from ancient Roman times, he, um, you, you feel there's a kind of animus towards the healthy and the deep irony, which people get much pleasure in their reading of Gibbon, came from that, one feels, his own personal drawbacks. Is history a matter of which stories about previous ages get told and, and by whom? Well, the novelist uh, Julian Barnes once wrote that the past 
as a way of behaving like a piglet, greased up and let loose in a room, mm. makes a lot of noise, <laughs> and people show their foolishness in trying to grab it. Um, one of the things about certainly professional historians uh, or anyone writing a new book of history is they um, want to show that previous books, previous writers hadn't got it right. Mm -hmm. um, there's this battle, um, academic and otherwise, to show that their view is uh, more sophisticated, more correct than what's gone before. So to that extent, everybody is trying to show up the, the, the writers mm -hmm. who've gone before them. It justifies the, the the project, in fact. Should we treat journalism, historical fiction, and television documentaries on a par with the work of professional scholars? Well, that's, again, one of the themes of my book, that we get our sense of the past from all kinds of different places. And I think that it's unusual that I've included a chapter on the writers of the Bible as well as a chapter on historical novelists um, and journalists. Um, and there's a chapter on Shakespeare. Our view of Richard III, right or wrong, is probably more taken from um, the play that Shakespeare wrote about Richard III, which was the most popular play during his own day, um, than any other source. E.L. Doctorow said, I'm quoting, the historian will tell you what happened, the novelist will tell you what it felt like. And you quote Hilary Mantel, who said, if we want added value to imagine not just how the past was, but what it felt like from the inside, we pick up a novel. I think those are both absolutely true, although sometimes, too, it takes a historical novelist to write their account of the past using what they pertain to be truths which have been hidden, so that um, the truth of the Napoleonic Wars is probably more understood by reading War and Peace than any of the other histories of the time. And I think that Solzhenitsyn's trilogy on the, on the gulags, on, on the awful prison camps under Stalin, is probably the most persuasive account by a novelist of some area in history. And there, it's not just um, the feeling of what it was like to be in one of those camps, but some of just the bare facts which had been um, covered up before, before Solzhenitsyn started writing about it. But Hilary Mantel's right. It's um, how people's emotions were like, um, how people felt, um, the kind of things which a novelist is particularly interested in, and not always a historian will be. Shouldn't we be more trusting of journalistic histories, books written by reporters who were witnesses to some of the events they describe, but uh, try to be as... Uh, objective as possible? Um, I think one of my messages would be, be as untrusting as you can possibly be. <laughs> There's a wonderful moment in, in a Tom Stoppard play where two journalists are talking about, um, I know, the particular war they're covering or some um, great incident that was world news. And one of them says, I, I, you know, I do try to be objective. And his uh, comrade says, yeah, yeah. But are you objective for or objective against? <laughs> In this book, you investigate the published works and private utterances of our greatest chroniclers who discover the agendas that inform their views of the world, which have often been very influential. But wasn't history writing once thought of as, as a revolutionary act? Um, well, there were certain times 
maybe you'd say still true. I mean, one thinks of Putin closing down the organization known as Memorial, which tried to keep alive the truths of Stalinist times. Um, so Memorial's acts were certainly regarded as revolutionary. Um, and Putin has said that anyone who worked for it are enemies of the state. Um, but one of the things which I found interesting, I try not to um, talk about historiography at all in the book, but I do trace the way that history developed from bare chronicles um, through to annals, um, um, and then both historians reckon they could use their own judgment, and people like Gibbon and Voltaire, for instance, tried to free the writing of history from automatically having to accede to what the Christian church taught, and that the church shouldn't say, this is, this is what you're allowed to say and what you're not. But what you get in the 19th century with a, a, a German called uh, Leopold von Renke is he wanted history to be a decent career choice. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, history crucially means two things. It means, means the past. But it also means how you tell the past. Um, so that in that sense, history is the, the filtering of the truths about the past. And von Renke said, well, science seems to be a very good thing, and people are starting to be recognized professors of science in our main universities. I rather like that idea. So we'll call history a science too. And um, we'll say that using primary sources, going to archives, uh, he brought in all these kind of laws, that's why it's it's called a discipline, um, that a historian should follow. And shortly after that, um, throughout uh, Western Europe, and the United States, professorships of history were set up, and history became a, a vocation. Well, G.R. Elton, the historian of Tudor, England, described history as, I'm quoting, imagination controlled by learning and scholarship, learning and scholarship rendered meaningful by imagination. Well, um, he, of course, was a professional academic, and although there's some marvelous writers on history from the universities, I think I'm also, I've also been keen to say that history writing can come from all kinds of different areas. I mean, you know, I mean, you, you're a, a painter in a, a previous life. Um, how many narrative paintings can really enlighten us about what life was like at a particular time? Like the Bayou I, Tapestry. You call yeah, it. I choose the Bayou Tapestry because I think it's probably the greatest mm. um, visual representation of a historical incident. Um, that, that we know of. But at the same time, I've been talking about agendas. The Normans uh, thought that it was a, a useful piece of propaganda, putting across how William the Conqueror and uh, his followers were really doing a right and, uh, and proper thing. But the actual tapestry was made by a group of nuns in the southeast of England, in Kent. And written into that tapestry is a whole different version of what the invasion of 1066 is all about. So, as I say, um, that shows you the agendas that different people can bring to a work of history, um, and also how varied, how varied the platforms that we learn history. And we were all historians. I mean, if you say coming into the studio, you'll never, you never realise what happened to me on the way to the studio today, and you relate some anecdote. You're acting, you're creating a story about the past. Mm-hmm. And, well, this um, is a history of histories. Um, yeah, uh, and I just feel I want to be democratic and say, um, 
we get our sense of the past, our truths about the past, from so many different sources, not just the professional historians, not just the academy. I'm speaking to Richard Cohen about his latest book, Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past, being uh, published in this country by Simon & Schuster. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So, uh, considering what you've been saying, is there even such a thing as objective history? Should we assume they're all untrustworthy and, and simply express a point of view on some level? No, that would be cynical. I think that we know a great deal about the past. We know that Hitler is dead. Uh, We don't necessarily know everything about why Stonehenge was built or how they built it. Um, But there's a kind of accretion over the years for what's true and what's false. Now, I know that I read that a while back, not that long ago, there was a poll in America of how many people believed Elvis Presley was still alive. Mm-hmm. And 43% said he was. There was another poll taken in England about historical figures, and a large number of schoolchildren said Winston Churchill was quite obviously, given all that he did, a piece of fiction. But Robin Hood and King Arthur really existed. So you've got a, a, a fair range of people who come up with the most strange ideas about what is true and what isn't. But overall... We're pretty good at sifting things through. For years and years, centuries, we thought that Richard III was a hunchback. But in recent years, we've learned that the odd um, structure of his back was from a a quite different physical deformity. Um, But it's taken that period of time to get that detail right. So we're building on each other block by block. And... I think one should always be suspicious as to whether something has been properly sourced, whether the evidence is in. But also we've got to realize when we, are, we ought to be happy that something definitely happened. Well, we tend to trust visual records, but you say that, in effect, Matthew Brady's photographs of Civil War battlefields were frauds. Um, a lot of them were, yes. He made... Um, people pose in particular in particular positions. He wasn't able to take actual battle scenes, so um, taking um, stationary objects was the best he could do. But he, he, we know that he would drag a dead soldier to a different position, which is which would make a better photo. He doctored the evidence. So in that sense, while his photographs are a wonderful record, they're also a fraudulent one. And you show other doctored photographs, for example, one with Stalin, where uh, uh, somebody they didn't want in the picture was just taken out. That's right. I mean, Stalin was a a dab hand, if that's the right phrase of that, um, telling his uh, um, scientific advisors to just get rid of people whom he wanted to get rid of um, politically or in life. But I also show um, that Uh, Chairman Mao did the same thing. There's a picture in the book of him um, uh, inspecting a whole rank of troops. And there's another character who's walking along with him. Well, Mao wasn't going to have that. He had this other character airbrushed out and enlarged the actual size of him in the photo to make him look more imposing, more the real boss. And I also included a photo taken after... um, Eisenhower 
had accepted the German surrender. And in the photo of him and his advisors that exists, there are several with Kay Summersby, his driver and putrid um, lover, um, there in the background. But um, the photos which are actually sent out to the press have her either airbrushed out or carefully hidden um, from, from um, the public view. So we all have done it. Certainly the advanced societies of the world have done it, putting our best foot forward. And I, I'm assuming that in some cases we still don't know what really happened because the only record we have is the doctored record. Well, there were two popes who never existed. Um, Pope John Twentieth and Pope Joan um, are total figments of the Vatican's imagination. Hmm. Um, the Swiss, the Swiss, sorry, the, the, the uh, uh, Swedish royal line has um, six kings called Charles, hmm. who never existed, but they were put in to make the whole royal lineage look more august. Levi Strauss maintained that history is modern in modern societies is like myth in pre-modern societies. It's the way we explain ourselves to ourselves. Well, we still have myths in contemporary society. I mean, think of the myths that are surrounding the JFK presidency mm -hmm. or the royal family in Britain. Um, we enjoy our myths because they create heroes and villains. Um, and particularly at the time of war, we've been reading recently that um, Vladimir Putin is determined that um, the Russian people, A, shouldn't learn about what's really happening. They should only be given the myth of what Putin allows his propaganda chiefs to tell them. In fact, you can't uh, use the word war in the, oh, exactly. the Russian press. Um, now, whether you call just the wording of things a myth or not is all part of myth-making. And one goes back to George Orwell, uh, it's interesting that Animal Farm, his satire on what Stalin's Soviet Union was like, mm -hmm. is the most banned book in the whole of Russia today. <laughs> but do you know that in America, the most banned book is Orwell's book 1984? Well, he got it on both sides, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. <laughs> now, some history books used in the South don't describe the Civil War as a war against slavery. In fact, uh, they... Uh, call it the War of the Northern Invasion or a war for states' rights. So, well, uh, and, um, and, and now the teaching of critical race theory has been banned in 14 states. Well, I, I cover in this book two and a half thousand years of history, and I try to write about the way um, race relations has been portrayed by historians, not just in the United States, but um, through the centuries. Um, uh, and... As far as the, the American Civil War goes, I wanted to um, have a chapter that showed how first one version of uh, an important event and then another um, took hold. And so that in the, really, the, the first um, 80 years after the American Civil War, it was the Southern view um, that was accepted by, by certainly everybody in the South and people beyond that, that, that territory. And the Southern School um, were dominant. And um, a historian called Dunning, um, he was an extremely important teacher. And he taught that 
the Southern were fighting for their independence, and slavery wasn't mentioned in his books, nor in the teaching of all his students who went on to head history faculties throughout the States. And then bit by bit, the vision of slavery as being um, essential, if not the main reason for why the Civil War was fought, started to get written. And black historians, African-American historians, bit by bit, started to be accepted. And it's a, it's a fascinating and often depressing story um, how long it took for even the, the version that said slavery was so crucial got a proper hearing. Well, it's obvious that uh, the, where the, the uh, historian lives is an important factor in determining how a book is going to be written. Wasn't that a problem, something of a problem, with your book, which was criticized at first for having something of a British bias? Um, well, here, I, you can probably say I'm prejudiced too. As I'm British, or I'm also an American citizen, um, you may say I'm biased, but Britain has produced over the decades more historians of note than I think possibly any other country with the exception of France. Um, and that may be a fact of them both being empire building nations. Mm. It may um, rest on them being such literary uh, uh, countries with such literary traditions. Um, so I was worried about including so many British historians. But then, you know, when I, I thought to myself, well, where are the historians of Africa, the actual indigenous African historians? And they didn't really exist uh, for a range of reasons. I mean, it wasn't until um, really the, the early 20th century that um, Africans became keen that they, they themselves should, should tell their own story. Um, and you then get Sean uh, Henrik Clark, um, African-American writer, who said, I want to tell the story of how important African history is over the millennia um, and how rich um, African history is. But he was an American historian. And I thought, I've got to face it, when I look at certain continents, not just countries, that don't seem to be historians there or people who wrote about the past, um, who have been of major influence in, in world history. And that's a sadness. I don't think that that is just my prejudices, though I'm sure my prejudices do exist. Well, weren't you asked by original U.S. publishers to rewrite part of this book? Um they felt that you had failed to take into account enough black historians, academics, and writers? Well, that's interesting. They actually said, um, if we published your book six months ago, we would have been fine with it. But during the year 2000, um, sorry, 2200, um, the world changed, and there was a real cultural shift. Mm. And they didn't just ask me, they approached other authors um, poets and novelists, not just historians or non-fiction writers, saying we've got to acknowledge that change in our culture. And from my point of view, it made the book far better. I had to read an awful lot of books and interview a lot of, of uh, African-American historians, but I know it improved the, the overall quality of my account. And you added an 18,000-word chapter plus extra material in existing chapters to include people like Frederick Douglass, W.E.B. Du Bois, Toni Morrison, and others. 
Well, to be honest, I'd actually written about them in the, in the chapter on the Civil War, but I extended the writing because um, the material I found was, was so interesting. And Toni Morrison, whom I'd written about um, in the chapter about historical novelists, I discovered she'd given a series of lectures um, at Harvard saying how important it was for imaginative writers, by which she meant novelists and poets, to tell the history of African-Americans. Um, so she actually was aware that that history was not being told and that it was a duty, the responsibility, particularly of black writers, to put that to rights. And what I would say in terms of, you know, dictatorships, dictators trying to shape history to their own liking, that's so prevalent now in the world. One um, thinks of Donald Trump when he was president, um, tearing up or asking to be destroyed matters for the historical record, which he didn't want to see seeing the light of day. That there's a there's a current highly topical battle between power and truth-telling about the past. And to that extent, history is, is really under attack. Good history. Well, we keep on going back to the, uh, the writings of a diff uh, or the record of different times and coming up with different interpretations of what happened. And I, I guess also, in the case of Donald Trump, if you are somebody who believes he was a great president, as some people do, those, uh, the, th the embarrassing things won't matter all that much. And to people who are critics, they uh, are totally damning. Um, I think I'd uh, reply to that, that. At the end of the book, when you get to the source notes, to make them slightly more interesting, I've included about eight cartoons about history and history writing, which I thought were pertinent. Mm -hmm. And there's one that shows um, a king on his throne and he's turning to one of his courtiers and saying, I mean, I'm worried about my legacy. <laughs> Kill all the historians. <laughs> You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. <laughs> Famous music can be told differently. Uh, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Richard Cohn. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past. Just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and the number 2 WBAI.org or, or call 212-209-2950. That's 212 209-2950. Do it during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large, and we thank you very much. And now I return to Richard Cohn. We're talking about his latest book, Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past, from Simon & Schuster. His previous books are By the Sword, Chasing the Sun, and How to Write Like Tolstoy, 
Boy, I wish I'd known about that when I tried to write a novel. Uh, he's the former publishing director of two leading London publishing houses, and he's edited books that have won the Pulitzer Booker and White Bread Custer Prizes. 21 have been number one bestsellers. So let's get back to what this book is about. Um, what about journalists? Aren't they writing the first drafts of history? Well, that's a famous phrase that's uh, used about them, and it's a true one. Um, they are on the spot, and you could say that their writings are source material rather than history, but I think they're both. Um, in the chapter on journalists um, as historians, I begin by talking about Samuel Pepys mm -hmm. and how he covered the Great Fire of London in 1665 or 6, can't remember now, um, and, of course, that's raw material, source material, real evidence of someone who was on the spot and writing as a journalist, although um, he wrote that in his diary. Um, and um, journalists can get it wrong. They've only got a certain perspective. But equally, they are there on the spot. And there's one thing that's interesting um, in the um, introduction um, to the first volume of his diaries by Henry Kissinger, when he says, there's one thing that if you've actually been at an event, that you were there. Any historian who writes after, um, who wasn't there at the time, has that deficit. You were there, and that gives you a special authority. Although another politician historian, um, Dean Acheson, um, in his memoirs, President of the Creation. And when he was writing that, he had one section which he sent off to a friend. He said, well, this is quite a significant story. I hope I've got it right. Can you just check mm -hmm. for the details? Um, when I was there, um, I, I really thought I was going to remember everything, but tell me. And his friend wrote back and said, um, Dean, you, you, you really have got everything right. All the details are fine, except for one thing. You weren't actually at the meeting. Now, of course... Uh, historians who have more than one eyewitness account can have a much richer view of what happened. Um, yes, um, that's why um, history writing is like a palimpsest, you know, one layer on another. Mm. And people add things the whole time. And I remember being really impressed when I first saw Kurosawa's film uh, Rashomon, where you have the awful story of a rape woman being raped um, in a Japanese forest. And the story is told from the different viewpoints of the three main people involved. Yes, it's a great film, Rashomon. Yeah, but then who is the truth teller? Mm -hmm. um, and um, if you get people writing about the Maile Massacre, for instance, uh, we may call it the Maile Massacre. For years and years, the American government gave it a totally different description um, and treated it as an incident in a totally different way from what modern historians do. Um, so it's not just what you see and what you can't see. It's, again, what you bring with you um, as your own agenda, your own point of view. And then sometimes don't we discover things that we didn't know about from the past that, that give a, a different color to what happened? In fact, sometimes yeah. change our percep perception of it completely? Yes, I think so. Um, and one thinks of, for instance, um, the current controversy over who betrayed Anne Frank, mm -hmm. the poor uh, Jewish uh, 
teenager um, in Holland whose diary has become such an international bestseller. Um, and the recent book saying, this is the person who was the traitor and gave her away to the, to the Nazis, um, created a huge stir. And people thought, goodness, here is new evidence that changes our view of that whole episode. Mm -hmm. And now the books had to be withdrawn because people say that the evidence was not right. It's been, put, <laughs> to, put it, to put it lightly, um, been highly questioned. Um, but new bits of evidence are coming forth the whole time. And although, I mean, you could say, well, if you're calling diarists and Bible writers and journalists and dramatists and so on historians, where does it stop? And it's true that I could have gone into anthropology. Um, what we're digging up, for instance, um, in the Near East and the Middle East, are, are changing our views on the Bible the whole time. That when in the um, mid and late 19th century, um, some beforehand, but mainly over that period, people said, well, you know, um, Moses couldn't have been the author of the first six books in the Old Testament, because one of them describes his death. And so um, Christian uh, historians said, well, um, yes, that, that you have got a point there. And then further research, aided particularly by what anthropologists um, uh, were discovering, rolled back the truthfulness of the Old Testament even further. And bit by bit, um, biblical scholars um, have had to acknowledge that the Bible is hugely important to our understanding of history, but it is a work of propaganda, not a work of pure history as we understand it. Now, you uh, are writing about people who write histories, but you provide some relatively unknown history in this book yourself. Uh, I did not know that Vladimir Putin's grandfather was Lenin and Stalin's cook, that Napoleon wasn't short, but rather average in height. Uh, I didn't know that Ken Burns is a descendant of, of the poet Robert Burns. Uh, and you uh, also write that when the Marxist critic Georgi Lukács was arrested following the outbreak of the Hungarian Revolution and was asked if he was carrying a weapon, he handed over his pen. No, I love that. Although, again, I'm not sure whether that's true or not. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes urban myths are too good to, mm -hmm. to leave out. Yes. That's one of the things about Herodotus. I used to, um, when I was reading Herodotus, in the early stages of, of the book, I used to take it to the supper table and read passages out loud to my wife. And large sections of Herodotus are quite plainly blarney, if I can use that Irish term. Um, he may have been told uh, certain stories, but even he would say, well, I'm not sure this is true, but it, it's too good to leave out. People with their, their heads in the middle of their bodies, um, people who could fly, um, women at marriage ceremonies um, in um, Libya, I think it was, um, wearing bracelets on their wrist to show how many men they'd slept with. Um, uh, Herodotus had a great eye for a good story, but I do feel that if he'd been alive now, he'd been writing for one of the tabloids, and it would have been a huge success in everything he wrote. Isn't there also a problem sometimes in uh, knowing who actually wrote the history? For example, Winston Churchill's history of World War II earned him millions, even though it was researched and partly written by other people. 
And yet, well, his you know, name is the only name on the cover. Uh, well, um, I think any historian, very few exceptions, who would say they weren't helped in one way or another by other people. But Churchill brought that to a really fine art. But he was a brilliant phrase maker. We know that from all the famous phrases that have come down to us. And one of his um, uh, chief uh, helpers, one of the people who did a lot of research for him, said, well, it's like asking a master chef whether he cooked the whole meal. Um, he may not have cooked every vegetable or peeled every vegetable or uh, made every sauce, but he oversaw it all. And that's why it's the name of a, the leading chef that has come down to us, not all the other people in the kitchen. And that's um, slightly hard on the people who um, did all the, the legwork for Churchill. But they all, those who have um, given their testimonies, um, give testimony saying that they would write their account and just occasionally, sometimes more than occasionally, Churchill would put a government minute straight from the records, the official records, um, which he would, quote, borrow, unquote, and sometimes never return. He put that straight into a book. But most of what he did, um, he rewrote. He added a Churchillian touch. Um, sometimes that took it closer to fiction than the real thing. Um, but as he said in the Houses of Parliament, People may wonder uh, um, how the history of the Second World War uh, will be written. And I can tell them, because I will write it. Um, it was, again, um, power taking over history. Um, but the influence of Winston Churchill's writings, not just um, the multi-volume history of the Second World War, but his writings on the first, his uh, multi-volume series, the history of the English-speaking English peoples, um, they were all huge bestsellers. And while people may poo-poo um, the quality of formal historical gifts in his writing, um, I put him on the spine of the book because um, he is one of the most influential historians who's ever lived. Well, you have a number of pictures of people on the cover of the uh, the of, of the book, the, uh, what do they call it? <laughs> oh, Churchill's on the spine, but you have eight other uh, historians as well. Um, you have been uh, kind of critical of Marxist historians, uh, but you um, are an admirer of the British historian Eric Hobsbawm, who joined the Communist Party in 1936, remained a member for 55 years. Was he capable of writing objective histories? Um, I asked him whether he could be objective. Um, I met him about two years before he died, and I did, whatever his views, like him enormously. Um, and he just sat back and laughed. He said, of course I'm not, but I try to obey the rules. And he recognized that uh, his beliefs would always color uh, the way he wrote history. And indeed, as I say in the book, sometimes biased history has produced some wonderful books. Biased history isn't untouchable. It's led to some of the most interesting work about the past. But my views on Marxism, I think that it's a wrong philosophy. It's an incomplete philosophy. Um, as Martin Amis, I think it was, said, it gets people wrong. But I'm a huge admirer of much of what Marx wrote. He told extraordinarily important truths about capitalism and the evils of capitalism. Um, 
And um, I think I write about him sympathetically, just as I write about Trotsky in many ways sympathetically. I say both of them, they were trying to do good, um, that Marx wasn't uh, dictatorial um, in his personal relations, um, they're not always admirable, but he certainly wasn't a, a Putin in the making. Uh, it's what I criticize in terms of the dead ends in Marxism. And turning to Hobsbawm, I think that his four books um, on 19th and 20th century history are as fine as any works of history um, published during his lifetime. Um, that's not to say he got everything right, mm. but he had such a, a love of literature, himself wrote so well, um, that when it comes to the matter of saying, are you tough on him, or rather, are you tough on Marxism and then lenient towards him? I did like him as a person. I didn't know him that well, but from his writings and my meeting with him. Um, and I feel that the fact that he never renounced um, the Communist Party, um, even through um, uh, the 1956 invasion of Hungary, the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968, how could one remain a member of that, uh, of that grouping? Um, and I think the truth to me of Hobsbawm's character is that when he was a young boy um, and uh, was living in Germany, um, the communists gave him hope. They gave him a group that he could associate with, recognized him, gave him work to do, delivering leaflets, whatever it might be, sometimes asking him to hide under his bed, um, politically dangerous material. And that was his, you remember um, in Citizen Kane, Rosebud, the, the sleigh, which emotionally was so important um, to Orson Welles. Um, well, the Communist Party of his youngest days had that kind of emotional importance to Hobsbawm. And so almost as a homage or kind of an act of loyalty to that Communist Party, um, that Lloyd allowed him to have a place in a particular society, um, I put his continued loyalty into that kind of framework. Well, don't we look the other way when it becomes inconvenient? For example, I just read about how um, the richest people in Germany all were inheritors of, of monies that were made during the Nazi era, the, uh, the automobile uh, company owners. Uh, and people know it, but they ignore it. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm talking with Richard Cohn, whose latest book is Making History, the Storytellers Who Shaped the Past. It's published by Simon & Schuster. And this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I don't know if you want to mention that and talk about Germany because I want to address a couple of other things. You rank Ken Burns' most effective TV documentaries with many of the best works of written history from the last 50 years. That's because he has a great photo, uh, film record to draw from? Partly. He had wonderful material. I also think that what's known as the famous Burns Zoom, when he zooms into a particular detail on a photograph um, and along with most often a well-informed and moving commentary, brings that detail to life. I just think he's a wonderful filmmaker. And although um, although um, um, he has been criticised for the actual Civil War series in not dealing with Reconstruction, mm. um, 
I think that the actual series gives a more complete um, and vital account of the war than any of the other books, fine than they've been, that I've read. I was thinking that if I were to think who of the leading figures who have written works of history uh, about periods in which they were major players, who wrote the best account, that Ulysses S. Grant's uh, was probably, is probably the, the most moving um, uh, and powerful memoir that I know. But he sometimes settles scores in that book. And of course, although it's meant to be a memoir, he writes about his childhood and upbringing, writes about uh, the war against Mexico and the Civil War. He doesn't write about his two periods of president at all. You write that oral history is no more prone to making things up or changing the past to suit the present than is written history. I, I guess you haven't been following what some members of the U.S. Congress have claimed about what they witnessed on January 6th last year. <laughs> um, I wrote that in the chapter on um, Islam. Mm -hmm. and um, Well, you say all, Islamic historians are dogmatic and intolerant in many cases. Well, um, since the time of Muhammad, I believe that certainly to be true. I mean, I make sure to say that I'm not an Islamic scholar, but um, from the people I interviewed who were scholars, are scholars um, in Islam, um, that um, really writing what I would call proper history or being free to use your own personal judgment and to put that judgment um, in action on the page is really not allowed in most countries um, in Iran or Iraq or other countries where there's a, there's a, a ruling Islamic religious um, group. Um, I think that's very sad and may well change. And if you go back to the Christian centuries, one might say the very same um, of Christian countries and the freedom of historians to write what they wanted then. Well, we only uh, have uh, two minutes left, or even less than that. So, but I do want to ask you a couple of questions uh, to sum up. How can we spot the inherent bias in a historic work? And in fact, does bias-free history even exist? Is that why we keep on getting revisionist histories? I wonder if bias will ever be free um, from any important historical account. Any good history teacher will tell you, don't just accept one version. Read around a particular subject as many different views as you can, and the truth will emerge, or a truth will emerge. So one way we can spot bad history or partial history is just reading as much as we can around a subject from other people, not just reading, taking all the arts, all the people uh, or, or works which are testament to what has happened in the past, and then coming to our own final judgment. So in the end, no one really gets to create a definitive history? I think that it is dangerous about anything to say uh, this is a definitive history. But if one were to say, you know, the Lapati radio show was one of the most important in American radio history, I think that would be a definitive judgment, don't you? <laughs> I think I do some of the most important radio shows in the hist in American radio history, but well, that's my opinion. <laughs> <laughs>
I want to thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating topic, and I guess uh, we will continue to have to investigate what is the true history and what isn't. Uh, Richard Cohn's book, Making History, The Storytellers Who Shaped the Past, is published by Simon & Schuster. His previous books are By the Sword, Chasing the Sun, and How to Write Like Tolstoy. Thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank you, too. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. My previous guest was British in England. They, Everybody, whether they listen to the BBC or not, has to pay a license fee. It's something we'll be discussing tomorrow uh, with the author of a book about the BBC. But we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so in this, to listen to this station, this show, to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's give the number to WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing Making History, The Storytellers Who Shaped the Past by Richard Cohn. So why not make that call right now to 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thank you if you do that with a WBAI tote bag. If We'll do that for anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Uh, sustaining members, of course, allow us to plan for the future, knowing that the money is going to keep on coming in. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to Leonard Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on the show by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play a part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with the tax-deductible support. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be David Hendy discussing his new book, The BBC, A Century on the Air. We'll see you then.